0: Good morning. Everyone, like John said, my name is Sam. Um, If, uh, yeah, I haven't had a chance to meet you. um, Hopefully we can do that later today. Um, But, yeah, I'm a member here, and it's a privilege for me to share God's word with you today. Um, My wife, Frances, she is pregnant with our first baby, and uh, she's a girl. I'm the baby. Um, Obviously, Francis is a girl. (laughs) I shouldn't have said that. Um, And we've been going back and forth trying to figure out uh, names for the baby, and there's one name in particular that I really like that Francis isn't really too fond of, Um, and it's it's Mildred. I think it's kind of a cute name, right? But uh, no, I'll, I think you guys agree. I can tell. <laughs> uh, but it gets mixed reviews, and Frances really hates it. But um, I'm trying to incept her and try to kind of convince her just a little bit by little. And I'm sharing that now just because I'm trying to speak it into existence. And so <laughs> we'll see. Um, but before I dive in, I want to share a little bit more about myself. Um, I wouldn't really consider myself an emotional person. I never used to really cry or feel super sad, at least not that often. But as I'm getting older, I found myself feeling more in touch with my emotions. For instance, I'm crying more during movies. Uh, The other day I was watching Men in Black 3. I don't know if you guys have seen that movie. (laughs) But I shed a couple of tears. I'm not ashamed to admit that. It's a good movie. I recommend it. Um, but yeah, it's just stuff like that. Uh, I think I've also found myself feeling more emotional when I think about my parents, especially when I think about them getting older and I think about everything that they've sacrificed for me, being first-generation immigrants here. And yeah, no, it just makes me sad, just kind of like you feel that tinge of sadness. you know? Maybe those things are normal for you, but... I was never really like that, and so it's a little foreign to me. And I think part of why I'm experiencing these sadder emotions more deeply is because as I've grown more mature in my faith, I'm seeing a little bit more clearly the brokenness in the world. It says in Romans 8 that creation is groaning because of sin, And I do feel like my soul is groaning a little bit more these days. And as Christians, I think we have to recognize that life has certain gut-wrenching realities. The longer we live as Christians, the more we should feel that groaning. And I think the Bible gives voice to those groanings, and it also provides instruction on how to navigate those gut-wrenching realities. And I think today's passage is a good example of that. And so if everyone could turn to Psalm 73 with me, that's where we'll be today, Psalm 73. And uh, this psalm has been a great comfort for me over the years, and I'm hoping that it's a comfort for you today. And so I'll read it for us, and then I'll pray, and then we can get going. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice loftily. They threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Then I discern their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. It is through your word that you've chosen to reveal yourself, to provide us instruction on how to live. And so we ask for your Holy Spirit to teach us this morning. We wanna hear from you. We don't wanna hear from a man, but we wanna hear from the living God and we believe that the words of scripture are your living words. And so Holy Spirit, would you come and do a work of illumination that we might see Christ a little bit more clearly, that we might cherish him a little bit more Deeply, we need you to do that. Would you do this for the glory of your name and the good of your people? pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So Psalm 73, uh, a psalm of Asaph. Well, who is Asaph? Asaph was a prominent Levite singer in David's court. He was essentially a worship leader, gifted in writing and singing, Songs. He wrote 12 psalms, Psalm 50 and Psalms 73 through 78. He also has a prophetic ministry. Psalm 83 is a prophetic judgment on the nations who oppose Israel, and then by extension, they oppose God. The Bible also mentions the sons of Asaph in Ezra and Nehemiah. The sons of Asaph are... Essentially, a group of worship leaders who have continued Asaph's worship ministry. Um, So, Asaph has a significant influence on the worship of God's people, even through today, right? We're reading one of his psalms. And the psalm that we're looking at today is a psalm of lament. And I think. I think lament is a key part of our lives as we grow and as we long for home and we deal with our emotions, our anger, our sadness, our confusion, our longing for God to make all things right in the world. And like I mentioned earlier, I think we all, to a certain degree, feel that groaning for God to make things right because things don't feel quite right and 62 of the 150 psalms are psalms of lament. This means that a huge chunk of the Bible's expression of worship and prayer is about expressing our pain. It's about how to be angry well, and sad well, and frustrated well, and fearful well. It means that lament is an appropriate response to all of the evil that we see in the world, God understands that we live in a broken world and he's giving us examples of how to navigate through all that in a way that honors him. And I think it's comforting for me to know that I'm not the first person who has felt these feelings of lament. There are 62 Psalms that are proof that that's not true. And I think anyone who's paying attention to the world around them has good reason to lament. I think especially Christians, those who follow God feel that. Uh, more than most. And this particular psalm of lament isn't about evil in general, but it's a personal lament about feeling injustice in our lives. It's about suffering even though we're trying to stay faithful to God. And on the flip side, there are people who oppose God who seem like they're so blessed and prosperous that it almost feels like they're being rewarded for their evil behavior and we're being punished for our faithfulness. Um, You know, I'm a big baseball fan Uh, My favorite team is the Dodgers. I grew up going to the games. Like most first generation Korean parents, my parents were very patriotic and loved being Korean. And so they took us to watch Channel Park, the uh, great Korean hope. And so I grew up going to Dodger games. And that's how I fell in love with baseball and the Dodgers. And fast forward to 2017, the Dodgers make the World Series. That's the The championship series of baseball. They make the World Series for the first time in my life. I'm excited about it. And they're going up against a team called the Houston Astros. And some of you are familiar with this story, right? Those of you who are baseball fans. But uh, that series, it goes back and forth. It's very close, right? There's not much between the teams. We're not sure who's going to win. It goes all the way to game seven, the final game. And the Dodgers ultimately fell short and lost to the Astros. And at the time, that I was devastated by this. You're so close to seeing your team win a championship, and they lose. But ultimately, that's what happens at sports. Sometimes your team gets outplayed. And so I was like, okay, that's just how the cookie crumbles. But fast forward a couple years, and it gets revealed that the Astros were cheating during that season. And more specifically, they cheated against the Dodgers in the World Series. And when I initially heard the news, I was like, oh, my gosh, like, what is this? What are they going to do about this? Surely they're going to suspend these players. They're going to get fined. They're going to get their World Series title stripped away. And when the league made their announcement, what happened was that they said nothing would happen to the players. No suspensions, no fines. They were going to continue to call themselves champions. And as a fan, I was furious about it. Right? I have a Dodgers group chat with a few guys and that group chat was popping off. They're like, this isn't right. They stole that championship from us. They don't even seem sorry about this. They were and it's still kind of a touchy subject. Um, and it just doesn't seem fair, right? They cheated. Um, and honestly, it isn't fair. The cheaters won. Um, but that's just baseball injustice, right? It's a silly game played by guys in silly outfits. Um, but I want us to stop and think just for a second about real injustice. I want us to think about the Christians around the world who are currently suffering for their faith. I know it's easy to get dialed into the day-to-day of our own lives and everything going on at church. It's easy to to focus on all of our own hardships, and I don't want to minimize any of that. I know many of us are struggling and my ultimate hope is that this sermon provides you encouragement if you're hurting or confused. <clears throat> um, but just for a moment, I'd like us to zoom out a little bit and try to see beyond our current circumstances. I was reading this story about a Christian couple from Australia who were doing ministry in Burkina Faso. Kenneth, who was a doctor... And his wife, Jocelyn, they ran a hospital together in a town called Jibo. And in 2016, the two were abducted by Al-Qaeda because of their faith. Jocelyn was released a month later after the kidnapping, but Kenneth was kept captive for seven years because of his faith in Jesus. Can you imagine that, being abducted from your home and then living in captivity for seven years because of what you believe in? I read another story recently about eight Christians in Libya who are currently imprisoned for their faith. Six of them are native Libyans and two of them are foreign missionaries and apparently there is a possibility that some of them could be sentenced to death because they were trying to spread the gospel in Libya. Now, there are hundreds of stories like this from across the world about Christians being thrown out of their homes and murdered for their faith and we pray for faith and encouragement and deliverance for all of those believers who are being persecuted. They're gross injustices. And so Asaph has a good reason for his struggles. He sees that something isn't right with this picture. We see it too, and he sees it, where evil is prospering and good is suffering. And so let's listen again to a struggle, verse four. It says, For they, the wicked, have no pangs until death, Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Asaph, he sees the wicked openly rebelling, against God, having no remorse, and they seem to be prospering. One of the themes of the Old Testament is that when you walk faithfully with God, you'll be blessed, and if you oppose God, you'll be cursed. Yet I think a lot of the times, it seems like there's a delay in God fulfilling that promise. There's a time lag until that blessing comes or until God enacts that divine justice. So in the meantime, how are we supposed to feel? And I know this feeling of injustice isn't foreign, to any of us feeling like our lives are complicated and hard and broken while it seems like other people's lives are so simple. Maybe you're longing for a life that's not yours because yours feels so messed up. As Christians, we're all on this lifelong journey back home to where we belong. And I think God understands that it's a tough road getting there. And these types of laments in the scriptures, they give validation to our experiences. It shows that sadness is a part of this fallen world. Doubts, struggles and confusions, they're natural reactions to what's happening around us. So that brings us to the first of four takeaways I want us to have from this psalm, and I'm hoping that these can help you fight when you find yourself struggling for faith. Um, so the first takeaway is that we should be honest before God in humility. We should be honest before God in humility. Uh, Let's read verses 2 to 3. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now read verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. What is he saying? Asaph sees how how the wicked are prospering, and he admits that he was envious of them. He's honest about having doubts about whether he's made the right choice to follow God. He's being honest about that internal conflict that he's experiencing. I think it's difficult to be honest enough to admit that you're having these kinds of doubts, that your faith is being shaken and tested. Asaph, he's in this emotional and theological dilemma, and he takes those things to God. He's saying, I thought God was supposed to be Good to those who follow him, and I thought God would bring justice to the wicked, but the struggles of life are challenging his faith. How can he trust God and his promises when his own life seems like such a mess compared to those who don't follow God? How can we trust God when our lives seem this way? How do we know that God will fulfill his promises when it feels like he's abandoned us in our suffering? Um, Charles Spurgeon, he describes Asaph's faith in verse 13 as a faith that's napping. It exists, but it's not quite at the center of his life. It's there, but it's not active, and it's not the driving force of everything that he's doing, and that's because he's struggling to reconcile what he's experiencing with what he knows to be true. There's a disconnect. And I think this type of struggle for faith plays a vital role in our growth as Christians. There's good struggle and good doubt and good questioning. I think it's good when it's palms up and humble and Godward, but it's bad when it's close-fisted and inward and self-focused. I think there's a big difference between asking God why in a confused yet wanting to believe and trust and surrender type of way and asking God why in an angry and vindictive way. And as we aim to be honest through our struggles, we have to know the difference. Read verse 16. It says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Asaph goes to the first half of the psalm and he's just kind of vomiting everything that he's feeling, all of his observations about the wicked, all of his doubts. But then instead of giving in to these doubts, he's trying to understand it all. But when I thought of how to understand this, all of this that's going on around me, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He's saying, I'm struggling to reconcile how I currently feel with what I know is true. But it's hard for me right now. I don't understand, but I want to understand. And we know that God longs for us to be honest with him about our burdens. He wants us to bring him our struggles and anxieties. First Peter 5 says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. God loves it when we bring our honest struggles before him. He cares for us. But at the same time, he judges sinful rebellion that would put ourselves in God's place. When we direct our anger at God in the name of being honest, I think we're missing the first part of that passage where it says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Um. And I'd like to make a small side point here on this first takeaway. And that side point is to not allow your pursuit of honesty to influence others negatively. Um, let's read verse 15. It says, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. What's he saying here? If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So Asaph, he goes on this rant in the first half of his psalm. It was his honest lament before God, but he says that if he were to make those feelings public when he was in the heat of the moment, he would have betrayed those who learned from that perspective. He would have hurt them. So yes, speak to your DG members and your DG leaders. Speak to your trusted friends. Speak to your church. Be honest about where you're at, but we should also aim to be self-aware about where we're at. Asaph kind of comes to his senses, in the second half of the psalm, and he realizes the arrogant way that he was viewing God. This is what he says in verses 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. He's saying in the midst of my struggle, I lacked perspective. I acted out of ignorance, and because my heart was hurting, I lashed out. And I think we have to recognize that we have limited perspectives. And we have a responsibility to be wise about what we say. And I get that this is difficult in practice and we need wisdom to do this well. But I at least want to impart the principle that our personal struggles could have both positive and negative ramifications on others depending on how we express them. And so should we be honest before God and others? Yes. But do we also need to have a humble posture before God and use wisdom in how we speak to others? Yes. So that's the first takeaway. Be honest before God in humility. The second takeaway from the psalm is don't envy the wicked because we know their end. Don't envy the wicked because we know their end. Let's read verses 16 through 20. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Then read verse 27. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Asaph was becoming envious of the wicked, but then he says that he discerned their end. Let me read this again. Truly you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed at a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. What's he talking about here? He's talking about hell. He's talking about God's final judgment on the wicked. He's talking about their end, what happens ultimately to those who choose to rebel against God. And sure, sin does seem like it prospers initially, right? Sin does feel good in the moment. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. That's why we all sin at the end of the day, because it feels good. But ultimately, it leads to destruction. You make them fall to ruin how they are destroyed in a moment, there will be a point when God's patience runs out against disobedience and rebellion. The Bible says that a day is coming when Jesus will come in judgment and hold everyone accountable for their actions, for choosing to live their own way and rejecting God. That's what Asaph's talking about here, and he finds great comfort there. I think in today's culture, hell feels like a bit of a taboo subject. I think people may, may feel a little squeamish when we talk about hell. I've heard people say, if God is a loving God, how could he possibly send people to hell? Um, I don't think we really like talking about hell, but when B- the Bible talks about it, it's meant to bring comfort to people who's, who are struggling like Asaph is. And Asaph, instead of asking, if God is a loving God, how can he send people to hell? He asks, if God is a just God, why is he allowing wickedness to prosper? And I think which of these two questions we ask depends on how much injustice we've actually seen or experienced in our lives. I have a feeling that persecuted Christians have a greater longing for God's justice than those of us who grew up in the West in a more comfortable, uh, in a more comfortable faith. The reality is there will be a day when there will be no more j- injustice And everything will be made right, and everyone who chose the path of wickedness will have to answer for what they've done. And I hope we don't feel squeamish when we're talking about hell because the world needs God to make everything right again. If there was a murderer on trial and he's found guilty, but the judge comes up and says, actually, because I'm a loving judge, I'm going to allow you to go free, I think there would be a collective outrage against that judge That judge is supposed to uphold justice, yet he is allowing a guilty person to go free without any punishment. Our God is just, and he cannot allow sin to prosper in the end. So don't envy the wicked because we know their end. The Bible tells us. So that's takeaway number two. Don't envy the wicked because we know their end. Takeaway number three is that we should worship together through the struggle. That we should worship together through The struggle. Let's read verses 16 and 17 again. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. So where was Asaph when he was able to gain perspective about the wicked? He was in the sanctuary of God. He was in the temple where God's people gathered to worship him. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. He's saying, I had no way of understanding what God was doing until I went to worship him. And I'm not sure exactly what happened when Asaph went into the sanctuary, what exactly he experienced. But there's a turning point here for Asaph when he goes into the sanctuary. He gains some sort of additional understanding about the end of the wicked when he goes there. So it seems like worshiping God with the people of God is one way God helps us make sense of our personal struggles. Asaph goes into the sanctuary, the place of corporate worship, and he receives insight from God about the end of the wicked. But what else happens when we come together to worship God? I think we regain a sense of identity. Not as individuals who are suffering alone, but as members of God's eternal family. When we come together to worship, we're reminded that while we all struggle with different things, we worship the same God and we have the same goal, to love him and see him magnified in the world. And I think the idea that our individual struggles are only about us is foreign to Asaph. Our struggles are meant to grow us so that we can ultimately help each other. That's really one of the implications of verse 15. Can I read it? It says, I had, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Asaph is saying that if he had spoken out when he had the unhealthy perspective about his life, and about God, he would have betrayed generations who have, who may have been influenced by that perspective. Instead, when he came to worship in the sanctuary of God with the people of God, God gave him understanding and he was able to write this psalm that has instead blessed generations. And so Asaph's struggles aren't just about him and our struggles aren't just about us individually. And so my hope and my encouragement is that we would Worship together through our struggles so that we can experience God together and grow together and ultimately help and bless each other. And so that's takeaway number three, that we should worship together through the struggle. The fourth and final takeaway is that we can hope in God himself. We can hope in God himself. Let's read verses 16 Through 28. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed at a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end To everyone who was unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Asaph goes into the sanctuary, into the sanctuary of God, and he sees not only the outcome of the proud, but he sees God for who he truly is. Asaph's ultimate conclusion isn't just longing for the injustice and suffering that he sees to be made right but he's longing for the God who can make it right. Asaph sees that God is with him, and that's the greatest reason for why Asaph doesn't envy the wicked anymore. Let me read this again. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What a beautiful confession that is. What is all the prosperity in the world compared to the spiritual riches of God's presence? What could this world offer that provides us more satisfaction than the joy of earnest fellowship with God himself? Asaph is saying here what I think every believer knows is true, that God is our true And great treasure and rock. Everything may be crashing down around us, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We may not always feel this to be true, but when push comes to shove, if you're a Christian, you've experienced this to be true. And in light of that, I wanna ask how is it that we have this? How is it that God will put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to him, yet he'll receive us to glory? Is it because we obey? Is it because we've kept our hearts clean and washed our hands in innocence, like the psalm says? Because in verse 1, it says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. It says, God is good to those who are pure in heart. And if we're all honest, I don't think any of us can say that we're pure in heart. Sure, we might be victims of injustice like Asaph, and we might be sincerely trying to obey God, but does that mean we're truly pure in heart? I think if we're really honest with ourselves, there's no way we can say yes to that question. So then how are we able to receive God's favor? How can we know for certain That God is good to us when we admit that we're not actually pure in heart. It's through Jesus. It's because only those who have been made right with God will be found pure in heart. It's not because we're better than the wicked. It's because Jesus saves us from our wickedness. Not only does Jesus save us from our wickedness, but he's also the solution to all of the brokenness and anguish we experience in the world. God sent his son into the world so that he can experience that brokenness and anguish to the point where he experienced the judgment that Asaph talks about is reserved for the wicked. Jesus suffered terrors. Jesus was made to fall into ruin. Jesus was judged despite being the only one who actually does have a pure heart. And when we put our faith in him, he receives that judgment on our behalf He saves us from our own wickedness by taking on the punishment meant for the wicked. And that's why we're able to come before God and say, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who have a pure heart. It's not because we're pure, it's because he's pure, and he gives that purity to us. And that's how all of the good things that Asaph is saying in this psalm can be ours. Notice that we go through this entire psalm, this roller coaster ride that Asaph takes us on. He goes from being confused and struggling about his faith to the sanctuary to seeing the end of the of the wicked and then delighting in God. And yet there are no indications that his circumstances have changed. It's entirely possible, likely, that the wicked continued to prosper and that Asaph continued to suffer. But what changed? It was his perspective. He was able to hope in God himself rather than focus on his circumstances. And that's my encouragement for you today. If you're here and you're trying to fight for faith but you feel discouraged or you're feeling beaten down by life and confused by your circumstances, I want to encourage you to look up toward God and away from your circumstances. I promise you, the solution to your problems is not merely improved circumstances. Sure, that might provide some temporary relief, but the only true balm, the only true solution to our struggles can be found in God himself. So let's look to Jesus, the one who understands our pain and struggles better than anyone else could. Let's put our faith in him Let's find our delight and hope in him so that we can say, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Um, I'll close our time with this quote from Don Carson who says the following about this psalm. He says, everything depends on where you start. If you begin by envying the prosperity of the wicked, the human mind can interpret that data So as to rule God out, to charge him with unfairness, to make piety and purity look silly. But if you begin with genuine delight in God, both in this world and in the world to come, you can put up with the flesh and heart failing and be absolutely confident that far from being the victim of injustice, you are in the best possible position, near to the good and sovereign God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for not leaving us alone in our struggles, for being continually with us, for promising to receive us to glory. We want to cling to that promise in our struggles. We confess that we are weak and our faith is weak, but we know that you are strong, that you're holding on to us and you promise to drag us across the finish line if that's what it takes. And so we thank you for being that kind of God. And it's true that it doesn't always feel like you're our portion and that even though our flesh and heart fail, we'll cling to you. We know that's true in our heads, but sometimes it doesn't feel that way in our hearts. Holy Spirit, would you help us to feel that in our hearts? We—that's not something we can muster, but we need you to stir up faith and affections for you. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for not leaving us in our wickedness, but for providing a way for us to receive your favor. For looking on us with compassion, sending your son that he might experience all of the brokenness, all of the judgment, that we might receive eternal joy. So we thank you. We want to cling to the truth of the gospel. We pray that that truth would drive us and be the main center of our faith, that our faith wouldn't be asleep, but it would be active and working in our lives and in the world. We thank you for loving us, for being our God. We pray all this in Jesus' name.